today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, does First Ontario Centre need to be renovated or would a new arena be a better choice? Michael Cohen has pled guilty. What impact does that have on the Russia probe and on Donald Trump? And should the city of Hamilton opt into the cannabis business? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Cops call to see him first, Ontario Center. Call it what you will. Uh, I, uh, the best way to maybe describe it right now is decrepit and falling apart. A recent uh, study uh, released now says it's going to take millions, I mean millions of dollars, to uh, bring this arena up to uh, basically standards that, that are necessary for this to open the doors. Uh, there's some health and safety issues and, and a number of other things that are going on right now, which raises the question, is it worth spending that kind of money? There are people that have other ideas. Maybe another arena might be uh, in the uh, offing. We're not sure what's going to happen yet. That's obviously something Hamilton Council is going to have to deal with. But one of the frames of reference they have was a report that was done uh, some time ago. Jasper Kajafsky, a Hamilton lawyer and consultant, was the one who spearheaded that initiative. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us uh, up to speed on what's going on. Jasper, thanks for, uh, for jumping in today. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you very much, Bill. It's nice chatting with you. Listen, when you guys did the report, and, and you're the one that brought this consortium together to, 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 to look at this and analyze this, and you brought some players in here to, to put some, some money up here so we could get an idea, uh, and, and you talked about different options. Uh, did you know at the time about the, the upkeep and some of the problems that this arena was going to face simply because of the fact of, uh, of how old it was? Absolutely. I don't think it comes as a surprise to anybody that, you know, the building is over 30 years old and it's going to experience a requirement for repairs. During the time that we did the study, the first chunk of the, of the arena renovation study was the existing building assessment. And a number of the things that were raised and that even at that time indicated that if, if a significant transformation of the building didn't take place, there would be millions of dollars in repairs required to keep it up to standards over type of period of time that's now being discussed. So that's not a surprise. Yeah, the the number that's getting bandied around right now is about $7 million, and that's just basically to do the, the bare minimum of work that needs to be done. I mean, I, I think you and I talked about uh, uh, when you were doing this study. I mean, the, the I guess one of the things that jumped out of a lot of people's minds is that escalator right in the front lobby there hadn't been fixed for about four or five years. It's finally been fixed, but obviously there's yeah. other things. This is the old idea that if you don't do the upkeep, it's, it's a, whether you own a house or a car or anything else, if you don't do the upkeep, the thing's going to fall apart, isn't it? That's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what does this do to the value of, of this arena? I mean, you, you you came with that report, Jasper, and you talked about a number of different options the city uh, has yeah. right now. Uh, and, and and you actually came up with some ideas about uh, about pricing on this and how this was going to impact taxpayers or whatever might happen in situations like this. Does this report and these numbers that you saw uh, the other day, does that change that report in any way as, as far as you're concerned? No, it's actually quite consistent with the report. So... It still leaves you in the same position of having to make a fundamental decision as to whether or not you want to do a transformation of your existing arena or whether you want to build a brand new arena. But one way or another, there's an arena issue in Hamilton. Now, I know I'm stating the obvious, but that's the bottom line. So that's the decision, I think, moving forward. And I think Michael Andelauer has made very good points, and he's raised that issue, and I commend him for that. And I think that's it puts in place the uh, sort of the umbrella under which the discussion about what is the arena project. But when you talk about the renovation study that we did, the, the group that the private sector group that I'm working with, it also raises the issue of convention. 
And that's a whole other piece. So that's the whole precinct discussion. So the arena is part of something bigger. It, there's many, there are many moving pieces to it. The arena is clearly a major part of that. And, and your report did touch on that. By the way, we are going to talk to Michael Andlar in just a few minutes uh, when, when you and I finish here, Jasper, and I want to get his, uh, his perspective on this. Yeah. But, but in your opinion, uh, if, in fact, uh, council decides and, and the community, I, say, I guess, in large decides that maybe that's not where the arena should be, maybe there's something else, that building, in your opinion, is, is it still useful to the city? You're talking about the Coliseum? Yeah. Well, that, that as, as, as a trade center and, and convention center, et cetera, et cetera. No, the transformation of the arena into a convention center is not really the project that, in my view, would make sense. The, unless you're literally you're building a new, like, if you bring it down literally and start from scratch, it's a large footprint. Yeah. So from a location perspective, it makes, you could say it makes sense. But the real issue is whether or not you're doing that because you've concluded that your arena project, whether it's in the core or whether it's in another part of the city, is going to be a brand new construction, which by definition means you're going to end up with a much smaller building because I don't believe anybody is going to propose tearing down a 17,500-seat arena to build a 17,500-seat arena. So you're into a much smaller venue. And then you have to make fundamental decisions about that. And clearly, from our perspective, from the, the, the group that did the arena renovation study, the, the goal is to have a building that can still have the big concerts, host the Juno Awards, and do you know, major league events. Even even though it's not going to ultimately, I mean, I'm not opening up the hockey question. The hockey question is clearly having a, a suitable home for the Bulldogs. And, and, and it, yeah, and that's obviously the major tenet. I know there are still some people that still harbor these ideas about, well, what if the NHL ever comes no. calling? I mean, I think, I think that ship no. has sailed. No, well, I'm, I'm, I, you know, that's a discussion for another day. If yeah. people want to talk about the history of that, I'm certainly more, I think it's, it's big topic and it's interesting well, it's, it's only a three-hour show jasper we don't have time exactly. to go into all that exactly from the perspective of the arena project going forward the arena renovation of the existing coliseum is based on the premise that you're doing a fundamental lower bowl renovation to get approximately nine thousand premium seats still have the ability to build to use the balcony for the bigger shows and then there's a specific reference to the roof and the structural capacity of the roof to sustain weight. That's a whole other piece that needs to be drilled down in the discussion about the future of the arena. The project that I would be recommending, and I think our consortium sees as the way to move forward, if it could be financed and if it could be put together, is the significant lower bowl transformation, but still doing a significant roof project that allows it to be able to hang the big roof, a much more elaborate um, curtaining and drop ceiling system to give the building intimacy when you're only using, as you will for most events, the lower section. Now, did you cost that out on a what-if basis if they decide to go in that direction, how much that would cost? Yeah, because when you look at the arena renovation study, back in that time, the costing of the lower bowl renovation was $68 million. Yeah. The complete transformation was 252 These are in 2016, 2017 dollars. And if you just take out the roof, the, the stiffening of the uh, rebar-reinforced concrete columns that hold up that cable tension roof system, um, that alone can be cut out, and you end up with a total package for the lower bowl and the roof of a, a 
it's somewhere in the area of a hundred million dollars, if not a little bit more. All right, and and those, as you say, those are costs from from a couple of years ago. So that that might actually be a little bit more, well, given the fact that the longer you up, wait, the more it's going to cost, right? Uh, it could end up in the eighty to a hundred. I saw a number for a for the uh, arena of about sixty to eighty. I think you're going to end up with numbers for a smaller, a, a brand new build arena versus the lower bowl and roof of the Coliseum are actually quite similar numbers. They'll end up with similar numbers. You could. It's costed back then, but you also get into how it's procured and making sure you get value for money and that you're not overpaying for things. You shop them out properly. If you do this project smart, it's gonna, it'll come in at numbers that are comparable with a new arena build. Now, you've done your homework on this, and you've looked at other cities, other arenas, and, and, and their business models when, as you were preparing this report. Can that arena, let's call it First Ontario Centre, the, 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 obviously the name, can that arena be a profitable entity for the city if there's no hockey played in there? I, I mean, you talked about concerts, conventions, etc., and everybody thinks of you know of the Garth Brooks and, and the and, and the U2 concerts and some of the great things that have been in there, but you're not going to have 17,000 people there every night of, of the week. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Course. Can it be a viable entity without hockey? Well, I, don't, I don't really like going down that road. You can make Well, yeah, but that may be an option. Well, I, I hope I think that the option that makes the most sense is clearly to do a project that has a main hockey tenant. Um, you can look at there are buildings, for example, that don't have permanent sports tenants in the United States, but but they often will say have a college a tenant um, do very well on concerts. If you if you're not booking that many nights in advance, then you have that more availability on the concert side, but. But arenas are built to have these kind of tenants and be in the mix for the good concerts, and there's been quite a few going in. So uh, I really think that the, the long term of the building hopefully will include a hockey tenant. If it doesn't, then the whole thing is reviewed if another arena in another part of town is actually constructed. And, and the way that the city seems to want to market this, is, as, as you talked about at the beginning of our conversation here, is an entertainment precinct. Uh, obviously, with Hamilton Place, uh, First Ontario Concert Hall, the Convention Center, and and obviously the arena as it is, uh, with those three together in a package, does this make it a uh, uh, an attractive entity for pri- private sector investment? Well, that's exactly what our private sector group is doing, because you know the arena renovation study is already banked, done back in 2016. The, the project moving forward, I think, is you're going to see, you know, roll out in January. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of saying things publicly that are being discussed with the city, but there's a whole discussion going on about what the next step in the, in the urban precinct plan is going to be, and I emphasize the word urban, and a lot of that's going to have to do with uh, the need of a new conventions facility. We can debate the arena. Should it be a new one? Should it be a renovation? Something has to be done. On the convention side, it's quite easy. We need a new convention center, period. Yeah. And our, our group, our private sector group, clearly sees that in the heart of the urban core. And that's the, the next step of work that's going to roll out as we, as, we, as we start to deal with what had originally been talked about at council back on August 13th. But then, of course, there's an election and there's how that went down and now how you're going to see the private sector work collaboratively and cooperatively in doing what we think will be seen as good work that respects the city's requirement to independently review any private sector group that wants to be involved in the development of a precinct 
and ours is clearly designated as being in the urban core. And and that the convention center makes obvious sense downtown. I mean, we need to see that happen. Uh, but I guess the question is, is, is you've talked about the, the footprint there, and there's basically two of them. Because the convention center and, and and Hamilton Place are really in the same building, that's the same footprint, really, uh, and the and just a block away, of, of course, is the arena itself. Uh, do you sell that stuff as a package, and is that going to attract the attract rather the kind of private sector investment that will defray some of these costs? Because these are big numbers, and taxpayers are going to look at this and say, "I don't think I want to spend that." I don't, I, you know, you, you've got to get somebody no. else to come in here and write a check. That's exactly what this entire plan is being premised on the the work that is being contemplated for the urban precinct is based specifically on Councillor Marula's motion of December of 2017, which says we, the city, don't have money, but what we have is land and regulatory authority. And so the work is to see how do you build a new convention centre in the heart of the urban core, and in, in the, the old site is then becomes something which is commercially viable, which is a mixed-use building. The theatre project has you know first ontario concert hall hamilton place remaining in the same place hamilton doesn't need a new theater you're not going to tear down hamilton place to build it again it's the right size it's in the right location you can tweak it uh, perhaps you know i mean people talk about new seats other things but those aren't fundamental changes the big two projects in terms of fundamental change are what is the arena project going to be and where and how are you going to site the new convention center and in return get the private sector regulatory, the land and the regulatory authority to build the density that makes sense out of the fact that you're in the private sector investing in a convention center and arena that are often have to be in the public sector because other people won't do it. We believe there's a way to make, to, to view the number, to, to put the numbers together where the private sector is making money back from the land and regulatory authority that the city brings to the table because they're making that private sector investment. That's the model. That's the template for making it work. All right, but if, if the arena were to be taken out of that, uh, that, that, that mix, that entity, because there is talk about perhaps another location, and I know that's not the road you want to go down, but it is still a possibility at that stage. Does that make that whole package that much less attractive to private sector investment? I think it's... On the arena side, you'd have to look at it independently. From the convention perspective, it wouldn't be optimal, but a convention center in the heart of urban Hamilton still makes sense. And that's the work going forward is going to be premised on looking at a chunk of the work, not all of it, but a chunk of the work going forward is going to have to be premised on the convention center as its own piece, recognizing that the arena issue is yet unresolved. I think you'd find any crunching of the numbers would tell you that having them all, the arena, the convention center, all the new hotels in the heart of the urban core is a much more saleable financial piece than saying we're going to extract out of it the main sports and entertainment venue and put it somewhere else. Clearly that would change the numbers. We haven't had much discussion even during the, the election campaign about this, but it's clearly an issue that uh, Hamilton Council is going to have to deal with sooner than later. Jasper, I really appreciate you jumping in here and giving us some perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Bill. Jasper Kajaski, of course, Hamilton lawyer and consultant who uh, put the consortium together to uh, look at this study. And, uh, well, the numbers are rather intimidating, I guess, when you look at some of the costs that just have to be done just to bring this arena up to proper standards in health and safety regulations. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Everybody is abuzz and uh, concerned about what's going on with the Mueller investigation south of the border. And an uh, interesting wrinkle, fascinating wrinkle about it yesterday in a surprise move. Uh, Trump's ex-lawyer, uh, Michael Cohen, appeared in a New York courtroom and actually copped a plea, pled guilty to lying to uh, investigators. Uh, the president had this reaction. He's trying to get a much lesser prison sentence by making up the story. Now, here's the thing. Even if he was right, it doesn't matter because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted during the campaign. I was running my business, a lot of different things during the campaign. Yeah, except that you kept saying that you had nothing to do with Russia. And now, apparently, according to what Cohen says, you did. And now he seems to be backtracking. Not for the first time, either. Joining us to talk about the implications of this, uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, uh, joins us here in studio. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Were you surprised by uh, the Cohen move, first of all? Well, he admitted to lying to Congress, which opens up Pandora's box. I mean, essentially, you've got the, the Senate alone, the committee that's looking into the Russia probe, it had interviewed 200 witnesses, and now it's going back through all those transcripts with new teeth saying, now we know that Mueller is going to prosecute people who lie to Congress or lie under oath to investigators. Now they can go back over all that testimony, which they're reportedly doing, see if anyone else lied, decide who else they want to talk to. And that doesn't even include the fact that the Congress is going to become a democratically run Congress. And you've got someone like Adam Schiff, who will be the, the top person on the committee saying, you know, we are going to use the fact that Mueller's taking these unusual steps to prosecute to really open this up come January. So this was really significant from a process point of view, from a point of view of if if Michael Cohen lied to Congress about something that Trump is trying to spin as being as unimportant as maybe he was lightly looking at some hotel maybe in Russia as a businessman and it was his right to do so in case he lost the election. If, if he's going to plead guilty to that, that means that there there's something there. Why are all these people lying about Russia? That's the question that I, I don't hear too many people asking. I mean, Orrin Hatch, the Republican senator, responded to this yesterday and said, look, at, yeah, this is troubling, but these the, uh, the people that have been convicted right now, it's all about lying to the committee or to Congress. He's, that's really a minor crime, and it is in itself. But the overriding question is, why is everybody lying? What are they covering up? For sure. And so there's all kinds of theories out there, and I don't want to you know, waste people's time speculating with what we don't know. But what we do know, and you can even hear it in Trump's voice there when just before he had to get on this flight to this summit. Uh, and you, we all know that he loves to consume media live. And so having to be in these high profile business meetings while this is unfolding must be very stressful for him. And so you heard in his voice almost like a, a bit of a higher pitch, more of a convincing pleading kind of a tone. Mm -hmm. And 10 times at least on that tarmac getting ready to fly off for the G20, he said over and over and over, well, even if I did, what does it matter? And even if I did, he's, he's trying too hard. You know, and there's a thing, there's an adage in public relations, if you're explaining, you're losing. And for so long, Trump has been so good at distorting and deflecting and projecting and scoffing, but he was explaining and in a panicky kind of a way. And so I think uh, for some of the most sort of careful analysts like Jeffrey Tubin, who have been watching this and saying, don't get excited, nothing's going to be impeached, that's not really illegal. For the first time yesterday, he said that he can see a possibility of Trump not completing his four years in office because of this. And so, you know, that that's a legal perspective that I think a lot of people are listening to. But just from a communications perspective, there's a sense, a rising sense of panic. 
And, and well, because he's running out of defense uh, uh, mechanisms. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned, I'm say, well, even if I did, and and then he started to articulate and say, well, it was just a hotel deal, and mm-hmm. and everybody knew about it. No, they didn't. Well, and, and back yeah. to, uh, up until yeah. yesterday, he denied it. Absolutely, he and they they've many outlets, of course, have shown him saying many times, "I have nothing to do with Russia." Okay, I have no money in Russia. I've got no interest in Russia. I did a Miss Universe thing years ago, but that's it. But what what Cohen his attorney has said is that actually during the campaign, he was actively as Trump's fixer working with Putin's fixer, Dmitry, about this hotel deal. And there is language going around between some of the people in these correspondence talking about, wouldn't it be great if we could show that business with Russia kind of trumps these other issues? And then you look at the fact that Putin had really wanted to get rid of sanctions and the Magnitsky Act, that whole Trump Tower meeting, all of it starts to make more sense. And Manafort, of course, uh, is has decided that he's going to keep lying to Mueller. And so they have essentially revoked his his deal that they had, right? Um, they're going after Manafort even harder because he keeps lying. Maybe he's waiting, Manafort's waiting for a pardon, but Cohen is not. He's willing to go to jail for this stuff. So we're going to hear what Mueller potentially has on Manafort, why Manafort, what he's lying about. So we don't have all the pieces yet. And for people who are listening, it might just seem like a giant witch hunt and too many pieces and it's taken two years. But I think if you look at it from the big picture perspective and Trump's reaction and how aggressive he's being against Mueller, including a retweet that he did of a bunch of his political opponents behind bars saying, when do the trials for treason start? I mean, you can look at it and say, oh, that's just Trump being hyperbolic and and, prov- and provocative. But this is a president of the United States, you know, uh, talking about treason trials against his enemies under incredible pressure from this so-called witch hunt. Uh, let's talk about timing, because he, again, uses that term t- t- all the time. But, you know, this is a witch hunt. Uh, there have been a number of indictments, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the dozens of indictments. I think seven convictions now, or eight convictions yeah. so far. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think 34, 36 people, 200 and, charges or something. Uh, and yeah. juxtapose that against uh, the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, which, by the way, was a three-year investigation right. uh, with zero uh, indictments. No charges were ever laid after that. So, I mean, for him to characterize this as just a, a witch hunt that's not going to get anywhere, it's already it's already paying dividends because people have been convicted. People have been indicted in this, and there are more to come. And I guess that big question now is, who's next? Well, the whole Roger Stone thing and and the WikiLeaks thing and who met with who met with WikiLeaks at what point? I mean, there there are so, sort of three different pillars to the Russia investigation: the Trump Tower meeting, this thing with the hotel in Moscow, and the thing with WikiLeaks. You know, w- did Manafort really secretly meet with Julian Assange and plan this kind of Hillary email dump? And did they time it? And we all remember that speech during the campaign where Trump said, "I'm going to have something big on Hillary," and he said, "Russia, if you've got her emails, release them now." I mean, and the next day. Right. And then here we go. Right. Yeah. And I'm talking about her having her campaign manager like a fish in the barrel. So so Mueller obviously knows all this stuff. You know, he knows who's lying and who's not by the virtue of these of who he's forcing back out of their their bargains and, and who's copying to please. So obviously the, his team knows more. And that's why there is right now a bipartisan bill in the Senate that would have Senate approval uh, to protect the Mueller investigation. But the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, will not let that bill go through because he knows it would pass because there's too many Republican senators now who saw Trump just decimated in the midterms, understand that they're on the wrong side of this thing now, and they are willing to do anything it takes to get you know all this information out. So why Mitch McConnell is not letting that happen? He says, well, it's, don't worry, 
the president's not going to fire Mueller? I don't know. He he brought in Whitaker instead of Rosenstein. No, he won't fire Wh- Whitaker. Will though? Yeah, well, possibly. And that and there was uh, that joke that Rosenstein apparently said at some speech this morning that uh, I tweeted out, mm-hmm. which basically uh, it says that you know you better if you've got something to say, you better say before it's too late. I'm um, people can read the joke, but uh, to me that's pretty profound, given that all these people now are suddenly feeling a lot more pressure. There's speculation in Washington, I'm sure you've heard this too, that uh, since the acting AG, uh, Matt Whitaker, has been there, uh, there have been no further indictments that have been issued, mm-hmm. but he has to sign off on those. And the speculation is is that Mueller may actually have more indictments that he wants to, to, to serve, but Whitaker won't allow him to do it. That's uh, a possibility. In, in other words, you can, you can stymie the investigation at that level. I mean, Sessions didn't do that because he had to recuse himself. Well, actually, Whitaker floated that theory when he was a CNN legal yeah. commentator uh, who would apparently fly to New York just to do panels so Trump would see him back in the day, a few months ago or whatever. And so one of the things that he floated forward was this idea of if Sessions were to go and someone were to replace him, they could just starve the investigation. They could just shut it down by funding. They could just delay it, all that kind of stuff. So there is a possibility that Whitaker is, in fact, trying to frustrate what Mueller is doing. But the reality is, even if he were to fire Mueller and say, no, you don't get to use any of that, the Congress in January could rehire Mueller, refund the whole thing and start it all back up. So it's it's if it's a if it's a Hail Mary pass, it's not a very good one. All right. With Cohen's uh submission yesterday and he it's not not just a plea of course he made a statement as well the written statement that was uh, given to the judge uh he talked about the fact that he talked to all three of the trump children they were in on this they mm-hmm. knew what was going on mm-hmm. uh and which brings into question did they lie well, you know, because uh, they've all they, testified, they have behind and, closed doors, and, unfortunately. That's right, but I think that that may be a privilege that won't be extended to them much longer. Certainly not in January, right? I think that uh, Adam Schiff and his committee are going to try to get to the bottom of this and help the Mueller investigation in any way in finding the truth. Now, there's a pardon possibility, right? Is Manafort holding out for a pardon? Does Trump think his kids can be pardoned? Sure, but it still goes back to why all the lies about Russia. What is the leverage? If the worst thing that they did was say we lied about any connections to Russia so that people wouldn't be, you know, skeptical of Trump's intentions or his allegiances or his taxes. Well, Trump, they've lied about a lot of things, right? Maybe not to Congress, but Trump has no problem with lying. So they could just say, yeah, well, you know, he wanted to get elected and he wanted to hedge his bets in case he stayed in business. So big deal, which is kind of what Trump's trying to float out there now. But why put so much effort into the lies if that's all it is? If there's no leverage, no leverage to change the stance on Ukraine of the GOP party, no no attempts to change the Magnitsky Act. I mean, if there's nothing else going on, if there's no leverage held by Russia over Trump and his family, then why go to all of that length just to say we were hedging our bets and we didn't really care if we told the truth? I, I know people don't like to have the the analogy of Watergate with what's going on right now, but it, the, the, it, I think it is a very apt uh, a comparison. Uh, and having lived through that, I was just getting into the business back in those days, so I was watching that case very carefully. And it was the same rhetoric, by the way. Nothing to see here. Uh, this is just sure. a witch hunt. There's nothing going on. As a matter of fact, the exact a lot of the, same words a lot were of the on the front that, page of the Washington exactly. Post in like 73 or whatever But was. there was a tipping point, though, Laura, where, where even the Republicans on that committee started to say, Howard Baker and Lowell Weicker mm-hmm. and others finally said, you know what, there's, there's something going on here. And they t- that, that turned everything around and led, obviously, to, to the possible impeachment of Richard Nixon. 
are we getting to that point with the Republicans now? Uh, now, uh, people like Lindsey Graham and McConnell, I guess, I don't know if they're ever going to switch, but, but the rest of them that, that are looking at what's going on in this body of evidence that's starting to come together right now. I think so, because one of the things that we have seen is several Republicans say, I will not be a part of any funding bill or any other legislation for the wall or anything Trump wants unless there's a protection of Mueller included in that. Because I think they see, okay, our way, I, I mean, the midterms were really more definitive. A lot of politicians are in it to stay. And they wanted to see where the winds were blowing. And if the winds were still super good for Trump, then they'd probably go along with whatever. Mm-hmm. They weren't good. It was a giant, giant blue wave, we've now found out. One that'll be generational impact because it goes all the way down ticket. And the fact that they kept the Senate, great. They kept it in a couple of total Trump country areas. But look at all the losses that they took. So these people know the math better than Trump does. They're professional politicians. They're looking for a way, probably, to secure themselves. So if Mueller is able to indict Trump and the facts are indisputable, then they get to walk away and still probably save their reputation in the next in the next election round. So I think that's why we're seeing some of them put conditions on other bills to send a message. And Lindsey Graham did it around actually Saudi Arabia. He called the president and he said, I'm not happy with the briefing we got about whether or not Khashoggi was killed by Saudi Arabia by the crown prince. So we've seen Lindsey Graham get a backbone on that. So who knows? Well, because that's obviously the the, the kingpin. And, and as people know, I'm sure, if ever there were going to be anything to do with impeachment, it goes to the Congress first, to the House, and then, of course, mm-hmm. to the Senate. It's, it, he's never going to get impeached by the Senate. I, w- I would agree it would be highly unlikely, unless there was a smoking gun from Mueller, and unless they were seeing from their polling that they were losing their districts. I mean, the fact right now is that we've got the first ever, I think, 60% disapproval rating of Trump after the midterms. And I think the Saudi Arabia Khashoggi thing at very least looks as though he's being too soft on bullies from other countries, right? Which has been a sort of a perennial complaint, but now it's really starting to, to dig into his numbers. So it's not to be cynical, but I don't think it has so much to do with high ideals. Uh, I think there's a lot of corruption in the world. I think it has more to do with, okay, what is my electability? Not even my legacy, but my electability if I stay too close to this person. And so that's why I see we've seen Lindsey Graham take some strong language and put some conditions on the president. And even the way he, he said, I, I just told the president that was not the typical I'm his golfing buddy language we'd heard before. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. City Council uh, gets sworn in on Monday, and uh, well, one of the first orders of business is going to have to be, uh, at some point in the next uh, three to four weeks after that, uh, deciding whether to opt in or opt out, of course, uh, to have uh, cannabis uh, outlets here. Now, they can do that right away, but of course, you've got to get in line for this, and there will be some provincial funding involved. Uh, we've had discussions uh, with some of the councillors about this. Uh, when uh, Mayor Eisenberger was with us here the other day for the Mayor's Town Hall, I asked him about that, and uh, he's very much in favour of opting in, thinks it's going to be a, a financial boon to the city. Some of the other councillors, though, are, are, are expressing some reservations about that for a variety of reasons. Well, there was a, a very interesting uh, op-ed piece that was in the spec the other day, uh, written by uh, Brittany Guerrero, who is uh, a, a local business owner who was uh, involved in the business for some time. And uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us her views on this. Brittany, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Great to have you. Great to have me. Thank you. Listen, a great piece in the spec, uh, very thoughtful and very well laid out, I thought, to present the case for this. Maybe you could uh, uh, articulate for our listeners exactly why you think the city should be opting in. Well, actually, it was in CBC Hamilton, but um, 
I believe that the city should opt in because the industry is already here. As we've seen, dispensaries have dominated the city since March of 2016 when I opened the first one, and they're clearly not going anywhere. Um, I've been begging licensing for regulation since I opened my first store. Um, I believe in the legitimization of these businesses as cannabis is now legal. And if the city chooses to opt out, these dispensaries are going to pop back up all over the city again. And instead of receiving some of the $40 million from the government, it's just going to be spending more and more money trying to shut down these illegal dispensaries when the city's already spent, you know, upwards of, according to my estima- estimation, I'm thinking, you know, $3 million with police work and licensing, municipal standards acts and all that stuff. So there's definitely a lot of positives and it's already here. It's already happening. Let's regulate it. Let's get this money legally uh, through the system with taxes and everything because we don't know what these stores are doing with the money. And I'm speaking from the other side. I was a yeah. former dispensary owner that shut my store down in order to try and get licensed. Why did you get in the, in the business in the first place? I'm always intrigued by that because at the time, as you mentioned, it was, it was illegal, but you, you thought it was worth the effort anyway. Well, I was uh, I lived in Vancouver for six years in my early 20s, and I, I watched the dispensary boom unfold over there. And uh, I was seeing what was happening. More stores were coming about, and it was becoming normalized. So when I moved back to Ontario, I decided to do the same thing. And I also didn't open my stores until Justin Trudeau got in, speaking of cannabis legalization. So I knew it was coming around the corner. And I believe that if we didn't open these stores, then we would still have a provincial monopoly like under the Kathleen Wynne government. Well, that's an interesting aspect of this. And and I've talked to other people that have been involved in the business as well, here in this city especially, Brittany. And and I'm of the opinion that, look, the fact that you guys did that at the time probably, probably motivated the governments to get involved in this. In other words, we can't just let this go on. Uh, we've got to, you know, either do this or not do this. And obviously, uh, Justin Trudeau have made a campaign promise at that time, and Kathleen Wynne obviously came alongside with this. But the fact that you guys were there already, and I think you were, you were moving the yard sticks a bit before the politicians did. Yeah, I was. Um you know, I feel like cannabis belongs in Hamilton, and we have people traveling, like, at my old store, we have people coming from as far as Windsor, making day trips, four-hour drives each way, just to come to a retail store to be able to shop. And we have all these customers coming from all of these different regions to Hamilton to spend money. Like I mentioned in my article, afterwards, they're going to Denninger's or wherever their local food places, they're filling up with gas in Hamilton before leaving the city. We Hamilton's known as the cannabis capital of Ontario, and why lose that? Why not get ahead of the jump, open these stores, and continue having these customers coming to our great city? All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the impact that it has, and and maybe one of the the first questions that a lot of people are going to be asking, and when because uh, there are going to be some public meetings about this, we'll get to that in a second. Is who are your customers? Who who walks into those stores? You know, it's everybody from 19 years of age all the way up to 85 looking for CBD. And that was the bit, the most surprising thing about opening these recreational stores to me was just the array of people. Cannabis has a way of bringing people together that would be friends that would never normally be friends if it wasn't for this this plant that they have in common. For example, when I opened the medicine cabinet, a couple doors down, there's this awesome tattoo shop called Wink, Wicked Inks owned by my friend Wendy, and she's, you know, I don't want to overage her, but she's, you know, in her 60s, and we became best friends, and it's somebody that I would have never, you know, approached 
on the street or whatever to become friends with. And it's so surprising. There's just the age variance. And people of every age smoke cannabis. Grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads, aunts, uncles. It has no age limit. It has no barriers. It doesn't care what race you are. It just brings everybody together. And and I think if people are being totally honest with themselves, I mean, they probably know somebody who who, who do, partakes now. Uh, you know, I, I know that some people have this vision in their heads, Brittany, the people that, that actually would frequent these stores or the, you know, the, the ones that are, you know, I'm listening to Grateful Dead and I got my hand back and Cheech and Chong mm-hmm. types. Of, and and, and that, that's not the case at all. I mean, I, I, I know lawyers, doctors, I mean, you name it. I mean, lots of people do this. Uh, everybody does it. And like I said, that was the most surprising thing to me is the variety of people. And that that's what made me realize that I was on the right track and doing the right thing because it wasn't just your quote-unquote Cheech and Chong types. It was people of every walk of life, every profession. So it Did, felt really good. How, would, how were you, uh, you mentioned about one of your neighbors when you opened the store a little while ago, but how were you received by the, by the, the business district, by the BIAs as you, as you opened the store? Well, it's funny because when I uh, when I opened Cannabis Culture, I was in the in- International Village, yep. and Susie was not a fan at all. And mainly, I believe, because we were disruptors more. We were serving hundreds of people a day. There were lineups down the street. Like, the parking was getting full. Like, we, we really disrupted that neighborhood. But now I hear that Susie wants up to three stores in her BIA, which I find very interesting because she fought me so hard. I tried to get meetings with her. She refuses to talk to me till still to this day. She will not answer messages. She will not answer calls. She just completely ignores me. And now she wants three stores in her international village, knowing the customer and foot traffic that these stores bring. Well, so I find it very ironic, but I'm happy that she does support it now, which is great. Well, you may be one of those stores. Yeah, hopefully. You know, I, maybe not myself directly because... I've been charged with a little bit more serious charges when I when I went down with cannabis culture. So hopefully I'll be I'll be allowed to work at one. I'll be allowed to manage one. So I'm trying my very best to get into the industry. Like I've been in it for ten years, and all I beg for is to be you know have have pay my payroll taxes and pay income tax and do all this stuff legitimately as a normal person of society instead of people like certain people looking down on us like we're criminals because we're not you know. Um, I know like some dispensaries were being robbed and most people didn't call the police to say, Hey, you know, somebody slapped me in the face with a gun and I think you should come down here and try and get him. But any dispensary that I've worked with and supported has called the police because we are not the criminals. People coming in with weapons are criminals and they need to be, they need justice, right? We need justice for these bad people. Let me, let me ask you about that point, because that's one of the issues that I hear constantly from people that still seem to have reservations about this whole process, is security. Uh, they, they don't want them near schools because they're afraid that kids are going to be, uh, you know, sold the stuff. Uh, they're afraid about high crime areas because of what you've just articulated. Is, in your opinion and with your experience, is that going to be an ongoing problem? Well, the whole school things, I think, you know, uh, in Toronto, there are a few LCBOs that are located around schools. And like my article said, you don't see a bunch of drunk miners stumbling down the street. Convenience stores are located conveniently right across the street from high school so that these kids can go and get their snacks and get their pop and chips and whatever easily. And there are also cigarettes at that store. And yes, miners smoke cigarettes, but no, they will not buy them from those convenience stores, specifically the ones located close to schools, because the operators know the risk that comes with that. 
So you don't feel it's a problem. It's 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 something that's out there, but uh, your experience indicates that that's not really what's going to happen. No, like like I said, you know, convenience stores are close to high schools. Uh, LCBOs in Toronto. I made a list last year. I'd have to pull that list back up of how close they are to schools, but. Miners are going to be getting this stuff anyways. You know, I speak for myself. I smoked my first joint when I was in grade nine. And I didn't get it from, obviously, I didn't get it from a store, right? But I also drank my first bottle of whiskey in grade nine. And I sat out front of a store and somebody bought it for me. It wasn't the operator selling me. But obviously, this stuff's ready, readily available, whether it's stolen from parents or it's purchased by an adult or a cousin or an uncle or whoever, like, it's always going to be a concern with minors, but it falls under the alcohol and tobacco where, you know, it's probably going to happen, but 95% of the time, it's not the store operator selling it directly to minors. Talk to us about the number of locations. Uh, you mentioned that uh, in in some people's minds, Hamilton is, as you mentioned, the cannabis capital of Ontario. So th- there's already an industry here, and there's already, a, 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 I guess, a need that, that's been expressed here. But but there's another concern now, too, that suggests that, look, we don't want to, you know, like, as you mentioned, three or four of these things all up and down the street. Uh, and my immediate answer to that, Brittany, is why not? I mean, it's a business, just like anything else. I'd rather have that than the payday loan store there. And that's exactly true. You know, successful businesses have a tendency to cluster. If you look up, for example, I, I use Nebo Road as an example up on the mountain. On Nebo Road, you go up there, what do you see? You see, you know, I can't say hundreds, but there are tons of granite counter stores. And there are tons of lighting shops all in the same strip. Auto parks grouped together. All of these businesses, when people are looking for that car, they go to an auto park with 10 different dealerships and pick through the best one until they decide which car they want to purchase. So all successful businesses cluster, and I don't think that that should be a concern. Um, from what I've heard, Hamilton is expecting almost 200 stores. And if that's, that's the case, that's you know a substantial amount of stores that almost puts these cannabis stores on the same level as convenience stores. I don't think that the profits are going to be as high as they were. You know, when we were a legal dispensary, we were looking at plus uh, 50% markup and profit on this, these products. And I think that legally it's going to be between 20 and 30. So I'm, I believe that these cannabis stores are going to be more like the convenience stores. It's not going to be as profitable, which, you know, I'm also I'm pleased about because out of some of these dispensaries, not everybody are activists like myself or Clint from MMJ. There's a bunch of good people, but there's also some not-so-good people that shouldn't be having this large revenue directed and filtered their way. But that's going to be up to, as you mentioned, to the gaming committee. This is a federal agency that obviously oversees these sorts of things. Not unlike if you had to apply for a liquor license for an establishment of some kind. Uh, And the city, obviously, through their licensing department, is going to have to do that. So they'll, they'll vet those people, won't they? The city is actually not allowed to license these cannabis. No, 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 Every- but no. But once they'll they'll the ones that will do the inspections, etc., and then they have to go through the provincial body if in case there's a problem with it. Yeah. So, you know, like there's always ways to get around. There's loopholes and everything, and I'm sure that a couple might get through. But for the majority of it, I believe that it will be good people. And you know, I've had people, some of my friends who have seen me in this industry for the last decade, say, you know what, Brittany, this is police officers firemen, lawyers, doctors, all saying, Brittany, you know, I would really love it if you could help me get a cannabis store because this is something that I really want to do. And again, people from all walks of life, police officers, firemen, all these people who are saying, you were right, Brittany, this looks like a great thing to do. 
Let's get involved. Well, we've seen this happen in the political realm, haven't we? A number of people, uh, including Julian Fantino, the former uh, Toronto chief of police, of course, is, is now invested in these companies. Many of them have because they look at it now. It's a legitimate business, and it's a good investment. But here's the thing. If with Julian Fantino is an excellent example of this. This man has spent his life criminalizing cannabis users, cannabis retailers, putting them in jail for multiple, multiple, multiple years. That I don't really agree with because... He, on the back end of it, he was arresting people, but he was also seeing the profit that's involved in this. So I'm kind of conflicted when it comes to Julian Fantino, only because he was, you know, bad guy number one for us, and now he's on the other side profiting from it. So it's like I'll work with my friends who are police officers and people like street officers or whatever, but if one of my friends who was on the drug agency that arrested me or whatever said, Brittany, I would love to get a cannabis store. I'd say, um, you know, you can, good luck with that. I'm not going to help you do that because you've criminalized us for my last 10 years. Well, keep but, in mind also, I'm not, you know, not going to try to hold it, carry the water for them. Uh, the police officer's job is to enforce the laws of the land, and uh, they don't create the laws. They simply enforce them. But, yeah, and I know an awful lot of officers that have to lay charges don't really want to, but that's their job, and it's, that's the way it goes. But anyway, it's, 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 it's past history now because it's, it's legal, so we're into that boat. Uh, where do we go from here now? How do you try to convince people on city council? And there's going to be some new people on city council, of course, that are going to have to make this decision. Uh, do you lobby them? Do you make phone calls? Do you, are the, you mentioned there's going to be some public hearings on this. That might be an opportunity to do that. So my intentions are to meet with counselors. I, there are five new counselors in Hamilton, I believe, mm. and uh, all the other ones I've met and spoken to, and I, I'm going to plan on meeting with the new ones and talking to them about it. And ultimately, they just need to understand, you know, whether it's religion that's blocking their views or the morality of it or whatever. They need to understand that it's already happening in a legal manner. If they opt out, these stores are going to boom bigger than they ever have. So at Hamilton's peak, there were 87 stores. The day Hamilton opts out, whether they choose to opt in months down the road, there's going to be over 150 within a month, and I guarantee it. And I predicted the cannabis boom in Hamilton when I opened my first store and tried to talk to licensing and saying, offer temporary licensing like the city of Vancouver. And I was ignored, and I hope that I'm not ignored this time because, again, I want to see this industry regulated in a great way in Hamilton, and it can do wonderful things for the city, and I look forward to it. So I'm going to try my best to lobby all the uh, council and just give my point of view because I have a very interesting point of view owning the first few stores in Hamilton and one of the most successful ones. What, what kind of response did you get from the councillors you have talked to? Um, you know, most most are good. Like, they're, I question some counselors' motives as to why they want to opt out, but that's a whole nother ball game, right? Like, they just need to they just need to see that it's happening already. They just need to decide whether they want it to happen illegally or legally, whether they want government funding or they don't want government funding. Because if they choose to opt out, the Ontario government isn't going to send police into Hamilton when they have all these other areas to worry about that are opting in that need the dispensary shut down. So we've become a last priority when it comes to policing. Um, There's just so many negatives that come with opting out. And if they opt out, all these customers that are coming from everywhere else are going to go to different places and take that away from Hamilton. It's my estimation that 100,000 people in Hamilton, one-fifth of the people smoke cannabis and shop at these stores. That's 100,000 people that you're turning away, denying the right to shop for something that's legal. So, 
Well, we'll see. The, the ball's in their court now. We'll see how they are. They're obviously going to evaluate this uh, as they come in. And I know they got, a lot of them got some negative comments uh, as they were campaigning last fall for the uh, municipal election. But I think a lot of that is still based on uh, some some untrue myths that uh, that people still perpetuate. And that's one of the first battles, I guess, is to try to overcome that sort of stuff. Uh, and the piece that you wrote is a good first step in that, Brittany. Thank you very much. Um, and also another point is all the jobs that will come into Hamilton. At my store alone, I employed 30 people, 30 people in one store. At, at my peak, I w- there were 19 people working a day. And that's times 200 stores, say the city wants. That could be 30 people times 200 that have legal paying jobs, which is such an important part. Well, yeah. It's and- great for the economy, the real estate, like all of these commercial buildings that are abandoned will be scooped up and purchased and cleaned. The city, it's the next deal, is my theory, and the city needs to get on it because, it's like I said, it's going to happen either way. So let's do it the right way the first time. Exactly. Brittany, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Brittany Guerrero, of course, business owner, uh, former business owner of a couple of different stores downtown, and now that it's legal, well, she'd like to see the city opt in and uh, share in the revenue that's going to be generated. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.